0: Would you please uh, stand as we read from Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning, starting in verse 1. It's on the screen as well. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. So this is Moses. He's speaking to a new generation of people. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. The generation that would not go into the promised land have passed away, and they're about to go into the promised land. They're on the precipice of moving into what God has promised, and uh, Moses, in about the last five weeks of his life, gives us the statutes and this law in Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments, commandments he's just given them. And now he's speaking to this new generation. He says that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. Verse two, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you. And you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for who you are, Lord, that you are faithful, Father God, that you are worthy of it all, that we can come together to worship you, that it's all about you. That is why we have come, Father God. And we just pray in these last few moments that we have, Lord God, that you would continue to move, continue to speak to hearts and to lives this morning, Father God. I pray for your anointing, Lord God, this morning, that it wouldn't be my words, Father God, that it would be you speaking through me, Lord God. Give us ears to hear, hearts that are open, Father God, that roots would take deep, deep roots in our life would would take place, Lord God, that we would grab a hold of what you have for us this morning, Father God. We give you this time, and it's in the powerful name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Would you greet a few people, shake a few hands before you sit down? Well, I wanna begin with a scenario for you. I want you to imagine that you are a new Christian. Now, for some of you, that might not be hard to imagine. Some of you, you got to go back decades, right? But I just want you to imagine you are, you're a new follower of Jesus. You've gotten your first Bible, and you, you open it up, okay? So you, you're in a room. Let's picture yourself in a room. You don't have your phone. You don't have the Internet. There's nothing in the room except for you and your Bible, and you open that thing up, and you begin to read. And on the, and the words that you begin to read, you're, you're seeing a God who is on mission to redeem and reconcile people from all tribes, all nations, all tongues. You see yourself being commissioned to go into all the world to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to be Christ's ambassadors. And it's almost as if you can hear the Mission Impossible theme music going on, right? Anybody want to sing for us this morning? Any Mission Impossible fans? Dun 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 Jesse, Dun dun right? You have to expect the Bible to like, right, this, this mission, if you choose to accept it, you, you expect the Bible to self-destruct, right? But it doesn't. It remains. Again, as a youth pastor, I read there, I'm like, wait, I'm supposed to reach all these people for Jesus, all every student in Delaware County and beyond, let's reach them for Jesus. How do I do that? And I search for curriculum. But imagine the shelves are empty, right? It's just you, you're alone in this room. Well, then what do we do? We we go to the internet. Maybe there's some curriculum, maybe there's some resource. Well, the internet's, you don't have your phone, you don't have your computer, the internet's not there, and you're like, well, wait a second. Christians pray, right? I'm a new Christian, I'm a new believer, I should pray. And so you begin to pray, you're asking God for his, his answer, you open your eyes, and it comes back to the only thing in the room, the Bible. And you're like, well, if God's mission is in the Bible, maybe God's method for his mission is also found in the Bible. And that brings us to our title this morning, God's Method for God's Mission. And that's what God laid on my heart is as we look at the mission of God and what we're called to do as a people, just kind of as Moses and these Israelites were on the precipice of a new beginning, 2023 is... is, soon to be behind us and we're on the precipice we're on the cusp of a new year as we step into 224 you know 2024 what is god's method for his mission now before we get to that you know the main takeaway this morning is that his mission requires that we use his method that to me makes sense that we don't seek the the world's answers that we don't seek curriculum and i'm not saying that's bad but that we would seek the method of God. Now, before we look at God's method and we answer that million-dollar question this morning, we first need to understand the mission of God. Now, scholars have coined this phrase called the Missio Dei. It's a Latin phrase. It has a long history. It can be traced back as far as Augustine. The Missio Dei literally means the mission of God. It was Aquinas who first used the term Missio Dei to describe the activity of a triune God. That God the Father sent the Son, that the Son sent the Spirit. So it has this sending connotation, the mission of God. Then Karl Barth in 1932 wrote a paper and he set out the idea that mission was God's work. And that authentic church mission must be in response to God's mission. And that's our first point this morning. We must remember that it is God's mission. We did not come up with it. It is not the church. It is not the big C church. It is not glad tidings. You know, we we are involved in missions, praise God, and and you all give towards missions, and, and we've done amazing work, but it's God's mission, and we get to partner with him in that. It originates with God. Missiologists said this, and on the next slide here, you'll see a quote His name is uh, David Bosch. He said this, It is not the church which undertakes mission. It is the missio dei, the mission of God, which constitutes the church. Or stated slightly different, It is not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Amen? Amen. Mission is not the invention, responsibility, or program of the church. Instead, it flows directly from the character and purposes of a missionary God. You know we have a missionary God? We have a missionary Bible, right, who looked down upon the world and sent his son. We have a sending God, and we have a sent God this morning. Amen? On the next slide, it is God who has a mission to set things right in a broken sinful world to redeem and to restore it to what he has always intended that is the missio day the mission of god we see it throughout the pages of scripture from the abrahamic blessing in genesis to what we just celebrated a week ago the coming of jesus in the new testament to revelation the very last pages of the bible where there are people from every tribe nation and tongue worshiping around the throne saying you are the only one who is worthy we see the common thread. We see a God who is on mission to redeem people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And it's still going on today. Amen? We get a glimpse of the nature and the character of God. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2 says, God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And then in Matthew twenty four fourteen Jesus himself says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This is best captured, the Missio Dei, in what is most likely the the most well-known verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16. Many of you know it by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave, that love pushed him to purpose. And he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the mission begins with God. For God so loved that he gave And who did he love? He loved the world, all people, drawing all people unto himself. The Missio Dei captures God's heart to rescue and redeem all people through his son, Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end there. We get to partner with him in his mission. Paul captures this in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5 18 to 21 one of my favorite passages of scripture let's read it's on the screen all of this is from God again it originates with him who reconciled us to himself through Christ amen if you've been reconciled to God through Christ you should be excited this morning if that's not you we're going to pray and I believe today is the day that you you be a part of God calling and drawing you unto himself but the verse does not stop there Paul goes and says, he says, it gave us and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. He finishes by saying, we implore you. On Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen? In summation of the missio dei, the Latin term for the mission of God articulates the belief that mission is God's mission, and we are God's instruments in that mission. And so that brings us to our next question this morning, what is our role? What is our specific role? We, we know that we serve a God who's on mission, that we have a part to play, that we get to partner with him, and so what is our role? Well, first, in 2 Corinthians, we just saw that we are Christ's ambassadors. We, we, are, we have been given that ministry of reconciliation. We're, we're making the appeal for all people to be reconciled through Christ to God. And then we land in Matthew, chapter 28, Verses 18 through 20, this is Jesus as he speaks to his disciples, he's been resurrected, he's about to ascend to the Father, and he gives to us what is now known as the Great Commission. He says, then Jesus came to them, his disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I want you to look at that first line, the authority. Again, it originates with the Lord. All authority has been given to me, that's Jesus. Again, this is him originating the mission. He's saying, I have all authority, therefore we're called to do four things. We're called to go, we're called to make disciples, we're called to baptize them and we're called to teach them. Teach them everything that I have commanded you. Who are we to go to? All nations. If you look at the original word there in the Greek, it's ethne or ethnos. That's where we get ethnic from or people group. So these aren't geopolitical states. We're like, hey, let's send a missionary to India and then check that off. No, we're, we're sending and we're, we're promised here that we're to go to every tribe, tongue, nation, every ethnic or people group. And we don't go alone. That last line, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Who's happy that you don't have to do it on your own? Amen? So God's method involves going, baptizing, teaching, and of course it involves discipleship. We are called to go to make disciples, to be his witnesses, to be his ambassadors, to share the gospel. But I want us to catch this this morning, that before we are called to do we are called to be i don't know about you but in the west americans we like to do anybody like to do right anybody like checklists yeah i think paula said amen you know there, there are some of us uh, uh, i called her out i mean i love checking up sometimes do you anybody do this if i complete a task that's not on my checklist i add it to my checklist so i can cross it off come on it just feels good it's like oh yes I didn't know I was supposed to do that, but I did it and I'm gonna cross it off. We're doers, we we wanna do, and we see this scripture, we're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to go, I'll go. I'm supposed to make disciples, let's go. But we've got to catch this morning that before we're called to do, we are called to be. Who is Jesus speaking to? Then Jesus came to them, his disciples. We are called to first be on fire, fully committed disciples, before we are called to make disciples. God's method involves discipleship and making disciples. But like I said, to make them, we must first be a disciple. And so what does that look like? This brings us back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. When Jesus was asked, what master, rabbi, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? He refers back to this passage of scripture. Deuteronomy 6 It's known as the Shema And then he says, we are to also love our neighbors as ourselves. There's a vertical component to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. And then there's a horizontal component that we are to love others, our neighbors, as ourselves. Jewish people call it the Shema. It comes from the first word, hear. We're going to break this down a little bit this morning, but to reread it, it says, hear, Shema, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Side note, this is a great passage if you're speaking with Muslims. In India, we, we were ministering to Muslims. They believe that we're polytheistic, that we have multiple gods, right? I, I would take them right here. No, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it, it's a triune nature, and we can begin to speak about, you know, it's reflected in three persons, but no, God is one, we worship one, and it's, it's a great jumping off point. You got that for free, not even in my notes, Okay. Also, side note, as these Israelites are getting ready to go into this land, this promised land, there are nations there that were polytheistic, that had multiple gods, each people group worshiping their own God. And Moses is saying, No, 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 no. Yahweh, creator God, is one. And this is the one you're going to worship. It's going to set you apart as a nation. Stay true to this one God. And then, verse 5 you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your strength. And these words, which I command you today, shall be in, some translations say, shall be on your heart. Vertical and then horizontal, Jesus adds, you should love your neighbor as yourself. So looking at the Shema, Jewish people, they're going to quote this twice a day at least, in the morning and the evening. Okay, this, this is, uh, if they know their time of death is coming, like they're kind of on their deathbed, they're going to, they're going to Quote the Shema even in their passing it literally means to hear or to listen but I want to catch this in ancient Hebrew there is not a separate word for obey Shema encapsulates both hearing and obeying in that same word it's like two sides of a coin in English we get it a little bit right like hear and listen anybody have kids this morning right I know for a fact that sometimes my kids hear me, but are they listening, right? I mean, they hear the words coming out of my mouth. No, she's saying, no, I don't even hear you. No, right? Sometimes it's like the Charlie Brown mom, right? Wah, 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 right? I'm like, I know you heard me. Great. My daughter's right over here. Don't look, don't, don't be shy, Gray. But Shema is implied that we're not just going to listen. We're not just going to hear it. We're going to listen. We're going to obey these words words prophets would say something like they have ears but they aren't listening right they, they could hear they could they could they would they would get the word but they're not following we are called to listen and obey and then what are we commanded to do you shall love the Lord your God that Hebrew word is ahava If you have notes this morning, it's in there, Ahava, your God. It refers to the affection or care one person shows to another. It's general in nature. It can be parental love, right, how you love your parents. It can be brotherly love, right, like Philadelphia, I guess, if anybody likes Philly. I don't know if Tyler's in here. It can be love for your leader or a ruler, like a nation has Ahava for one who leads them. It can be loyalty love. It's this encapsulating general term. Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, it says that God chose this nation, the Jewish nation, not because they were the biggest or the brightest or they were worthy of it. He, he chose them because he loved them. God loves the Israelites not because they somehow earned it or deserved it. It originates from his character. It says God loves them simply because he does. God is love. Ahava is a feeling and it's an action. In Deuteronomy 4, 37, it says because God loved the Israelites, he brought their descendants out of Egypt. Love moving him to act. Ahava is both affection and actions. We love and because of that, we do. We talked about John 3:16, 3, uh, For God so loved That he gave. His love drove to action. One scholar put it like this. God loves, so he does. And in the Shema, God's people, we, are called to respond to God's love, God's Ahava, by showing Ahava in return. With both affection and with action. And I just got a text. Tyler is watching online. That was for you, okay? He's he's a Philly Eagles fan, right? All right. Now, how are we to love the Lord our God? Three ways, and let's look at them briefly this morning. First, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. In the Hebrew, this is levav or lev. Now, different cultures had different understandings about the heart. Biblical authors knew that it was an organ, that it sustains life, but they also talk about it in other ways and concepts that might seem odd or foreign to our Western brain, our modern reader. This is because biblical Hebrew authors had no concept or a word in Hebrew for the brain. So they connected the heart with the things that we would think about happen in the brain. They believed that all of a human's intellectual activity took place in the heart, in the lev. You know with the heart. You understand and make connections with the heart. Wisdom resides in the heart. You feel emotions and pain in your heart. It's also where you make choices motivated by your desires. We see this throughout scripture. We don't have time. They're in your notes. But Proverbs talks a lot about the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. And so bringing it back to the Shema, how are we to love the Lord our God with all of our lev, with all of our heart, the way the Hebrew authors would have put it. It's on the screen. It says Every day. God's people are called to devote to God their whole body and their whole mind, their feelings and their desires, their future and their failures. This is what it means to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your love. Then we get to soul. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. This is translated nefesh, nefesh, nephesh, nephesh, N-E-P-H-E-S-H, nephesh. It occurs over 700 times in the Old Testament. When we think of soul, we, we kind of, again, in the, in the Western modern mind, we attach a lot of it to Greek philosophy. This idea that uh, the soul is a non-physical, immortal essence of a person that's contained or trapped within our body, it's to be released at death. It's kind of like a ghost in the machine idea. But Hebrew authors, when they use the word nephesh, did not have that idea in their mind. Literally, in biblical Hebrew, The word nefesh means throat. Everybody touch your throat. So you're telling me, Pastor Scott, that I am to love the Lord my God with all of my throat. Yes. The Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. They're hungry. They're thirsty. They cry out to God. They say, our nefesh has dried up. When Joseph is hauled off into slavery, into Egypt, his nefesh was put into iron shackles literally meaning throat, but it doesn't only mean throat. Since your whole life and body depend on what comes in and out of your throat, it says "nephesh." scholars said, could be used to refer to the whole person. This is captured in Psalm 42, 1-2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my nephesh pants for you. My God, my nephesh thirst for God, for the living God. On a physical level, your throat can be thirsty like a deer's, but then your physical thirst can become a metaphor for how your whole physical being longs to know and to be known by your Creator. We are to love the Lord our God with all that we are. Bringing it back to the Shema, to love God with all your nephesh means to devote your whole physical existence to your creator, the one who has granted us these amazing bodies in the first place. It's about offering your entire being with all of its capabilities and limitations in the effort to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. We love with all of our lev, with all of our nefesh, and finally, we love with all of our strength. Or me'od, me'od. It's in your notes, and I don't speak Hebrew, so. If, if there's any Hebrew scholars, sorry. But meod occurs 300 times in the Old Testament. And, spoiler alert, it does not actually mean strength as far as physical strength goes. There's another Hebrew word, but it, authors used meod. Meod actually is an adverb which means very or much. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God calls his creation meod good. It was very good. You can even use me'od twice. It was me'od, me'od good. So it's a qualifier. It, it, can, it can increase, it can change a word. Now thinking of the Shema, people are called to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, their will, and their affections, their physical body, their whole life, and then with all of their me'od. And scholars, in a very scholarly definition, came up with this word. Are you ready? With all of their muchness. Right? It kind of is a silly word, but you kind of get it. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our muchness. It intensifies that which we're already doing. It, it, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all that we are. It can intensify any word's meaning to its total capacity. So this final thing that you use to love God isn't really a thing at all. It's actually everything. Loving God with your mayode means devoting every possibility, every opportunity, and every capacity that you have to honoring God and loving your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to be a disciple, to love the Lord wholeheartedly with all your heart, soul, and strength, with our will and our affections, with our whole being, with everything that we are, everything that we have, our muchness, because we cannot pour from an empty container. Amen? We cannot pour. We cannot give to others what we do not have. We are called to make disciples, but if we are not loving the Lord our God like this, we're we're just pouring from ourselves. God wants all that we are. He wants us to be all in, to our love for him and our devotion to him and to him alone. We want revival. We want to see a move of God. We want to see the nation's reach. We want to see Delaware County and Muncie reach. Amen. And where does it begin? Well, preacher and revivalist Rodney Gypsy Smith. What a great nickname, right? He was a revivalist and people would ask him, how how do revivals begin? And look at what he says. You want revival? Go home. Lock yourself in your room. Kneel down in the middle of the floor. And with a piece of chalk, draw a circle around yourself. There on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. Wow, it starts with me. It starts with us. We want to do and we want to go. We want to make disciples. But is God doing a work in our heart? Has our heart been renovated? Are we growing into all the... God has for us. But once that happens, we don't stay siloed. We, we don't look out and see 300, 400, whatever, just individual silos, just vertical, loving God. We, we love with all we are. We have you know, internal uh, revival going on. No, we don't stay siloed. We begin to leak, if you will. We begin to think horizontally now. We begin to reach our neighbors and those that are nearest to us. We begin to pour out to reach others. And so where does this start? What is God's method for his mission? Well, like I already mentioned, it starts with authentic, wholehearted followers, disciples going after God with all that they are. We understand that we're commissioned, that we're Jesus, we're God's ambassadors. But where do we start? We reference the Shema, But on the screen are actually the next words that follow the Shema. Aren't you so thankful that God just doesn't leave us wondering where to start, what to do? Here's what you're called to do, and then you're on your own. No, look at what he says, starting in verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them as doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, we live, we live it out. We love the Lord our God with all that we are, right, with our heart, soul, and mind, strength, and then we live it out. We, we have the word imprinted on our hearts, but we don't keep it. We teach them diligently to the next generation. Our children, our grandchildren, those young people in our lives, and when do we do it? All the time. When, they, when they're falling asleep, when they wake up, when we're at home, when we're on the way, we're constantly sharing the good news. We're living it out in front of them. And I would submit to you this morning on the next slide that God's method for God's mission begins in the home with the family. We were a part, my family and I were a part of a, a movement called Live Dead. It's a church planning movement amongst unreached people groups. I mean, we, we lived amongst unreached, we had no local church, we, you know, we, we saw believers finally, but no believers, we were in places where we shared the name of Jesus for the very first time, we're out there doing the work, and we, the creator and the leader of Live Dead, his name's Dick Brogdon, some of you know him, right? He said this, you know the greatest thing you can do to reach unreached people is to abide with Jesus. Man, you gotta spend time with Jesus, you gotta be on fire. Don't, don't go to the frontier lands if, you're, if you yourself are not on fire and that your family, you know, I, I don't want to reach the unreached and lose my children. We, we are called to disciple the next generation. God created families in the home to be discipleship centers. You ever view your house as a discipleship center, ascending organization, if you will? supported and equipped by the local church. And no one's off the hook this morning. Some of you just checked out, like, I don't have kids. No, the Shema still applies to you. You're called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Grandparents, they're in that group. And if you think about the group that Moses is speaking to in Deuteronomy 6, there are people there that don't have kids. He's speaking to the whole whole nation of Israel, and you still have a role to play. There were non-parents, there were grandparents in the crowd, there were young people in the crowd. And again, another thing, there are aunties and uncles in the crowd. Now in India, we go to India, they are big on familiar terms, okay? So you never use anyone's name. When I met someone, I would call him, because I was a little older, I don't wanna call him uncle, because that'd be offensive, because he's like super old, but I call him big brother. So I I would call him big brother in Bengali. When Graylin, my daughter, would meet someone, they immediately became uncle. This is Uncle Joseph. This is Auntie Beth. Uh, She also had big brothers big sisters, Dada and Didi. So it was familiar terms. You're you're using relational terms. Everyone we met became a family member, an auntie or an uncle. They became, we, we didn't have family there, they became our family. And I believe that some of us are called to be aunties and uncles and mentors into the next generation right here in this church. Many of you are already serving in roles, maybe officially or unofficially, where you are pouring into young people that maybe you're not blood-related to, but you are called of God to mentor and to pour in, to speak of the things of God to the next generation. Stats back this up. Do you know that if a young person has a Christian mentor separate from the parents, so the parents are first, they're the most important, number one. But if they have a mentor separate from their parents, you can more than double the likelihood that a young person stays in the faith. And young people today, about 50% of them, so one out of two, and we got young people in here, we got students in here, I see some of my students in here. One out of two said their life has meaning and purpose. Only one out of two. That means the other one says my life has no meaning and has no purpose, 50%. But if they have one Christian mentor, it goes up to 70%. And if they can go up to five non-parent Christian mentors, 91% of them said, my life has meaning and purpose. You have a role to play this morning. Through Moses in the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, God is speaking to parents, grandparents, and mentors. First, love the Lord your God with everything that you are. This is paramount. We cannot give what we don't have. His words must be on our heart, but we don't keep them to ourselves. Verse 7 commands us to teach them diligently. I love that word, to your children, to the next generation. When you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, all the time. Discipleship begins at home. Now wait a second, we're in church, and you're a pastor. (laughs) I thought the church was for discipleship. Well, it is. God created two institutions for evangelizing and discipling the lost, the family and the church. The family is given the primary role, and the church is instructed to equip the family or to equip the saints for ministry. This may require a paradigm shift. And we take a look. The current paradigm for ministry is that it's church-centered, home-supported. But if again, if we go back to how we started and we're looking at the biblical method, God's method for God's mission, the biblical paradigm is actually home-centered, church-supported. That we, as a church, are going to come alongside of you and support you and equip you. That we are, you, it's not just drop your kids off at church. Yes, get them in church. But we're, as we're going to see in a moment, they spend the majority of their time at home with us, with our parents, you know, with us, I have three young kids as well. We are the primary disciple makers. If, under the current model and current paradigm, the numbers are not pretty, let's take a look at some of the current research. The average church person, average young person, attends church in America 1.9 times per month. Now, I'm not a math guy, but let's do a little quick math. Our service is around hour 15. Times two, right? What are we at? Two and a half hours? Let's just double it. Let's say, man, this young person's really good. They come four times. They're in church five hours a month. Five hours a month. Doubled the average. But look at the next point. The average young person spends seven hours on average in front of a screen per day. So a month of church is is really eradicated by seven hours of screen time per day. And some of you are like, wow. And some of you are like, only seven? Right? Some more. Two-thirds of young people will drop out of church by their early adult life. Two-thirds. This one broke my heart. Only 4% of Americans, catch this next line, who identify as Christian, not just Americans, Christian Americans, only 4% have a biblical worldview and only 2% of preteen parents have a biblical worldview. And this quote was from a book I'm reading called Visionary Church. It says, parents typically have no plan for the spiritual development of their children, do not consider it a priority, and have little or no training in how to nurture a child's faith. Friends, if we continue in the current paradigm down the same path, We may just end up with a result, maybe we're already there, of Judges 2.10. It reads, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. As sad as these stats and these findings are, these stats and findings are not our motivation. Our motivation is God, that it is God's method for his mission God's mission, I started with this, requires his method. We need to get back to that. Psalm 78, four says, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. Peter in Acts two, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. 3 John 1.4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And Deuteronomy 4.9, Moses again says, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. We are to diligently teach our children grandchildren, and the next generation to love God with all of their hearts, souls, and strength. And the church promises that we will partner with you to train and to equip and to support you, the parents. And so how do we do this? As we bring it to a close, some practical applications. First, there's no judgment. I'm a parent and I have failed. You can talk to Graylin, right? Two out of my three. Abram's here too. Don't talk to him. No, I'm just kidding. So no condemnation. We've all failed in this step, but I, I believe New Year's Eve is a great time. We're looking forward. We're looking back. What, what have we gotten right? What has the Lord done? But also, what can we do better? What, what does the Lord have for us in 2024? Also, you're not alone. Again, the church is here to support and to train to walk alongside of you. Maybe you're already doing it. We commend you. We want to encourage you to do more, to, to pour into your kids' lives. Maybe it all seems overwhelming, but it's in your notes, and I just want to give you a question. What's one practical step that you could take? You don't have to do a 100 of them, just what's one next step that you could take? Maybe you have kids at home, maybe you don't. Maybe it's a serve, serving in the church. Maybe it's something outside. Maybe it's something in your home that you can initiate, maybe even starting tomorrow. We have resources like Discipleship at Home, .org and other resources here. We're going to give you monthly and, and weekly resources to equip your parent, you parents to disciple your children. What if for one year you went all in? For 2024, you said, I'm going all in. If you don't have kids, maybe it's just on a personal level. I'm going to read the Bible through a year. I'm going to commit to reading every day or fasting or praying, whatever God's speaking to you. But this is the year. I'm going to begin to serve. I'm going to go to every function. I'm going to grow in my faith. If you have children, maybe this is the year you say, we're going to have family devotions at home. We're going to have a weekly family worship Time. We're going to sing songs. We're going to memorize scripture. When they wake up and when they go to sleep, when we're in the car, you've got a captive audience. I'm, I'm going to have music on. I'm going to be preaching them. I'm going to be sharing, and I'm going to live it out in front of them. Maybe this is the year. Fast forward a year from today. New Year's Eve, 2024. As we look back, we can see, man, how, what, what God has done in our lives and in our family, in our children, in our next generation's lives. Let it be so. I want to close with a story of a little boy named Billy. He said this. He said, in my Depression-era growing-up years, our North Carolina dairy farm bore some resemblance to the fictional Walton family on television. It's easy to feel nostalgic about simpler times, but they were not easier times. But what we did have back then was family solidarity. We really cared about each other, and we liked to do things together. Jesus' word picture of a hen gathering her brood under her wing fits my mother, Billy said. She saw to it that we gathered frequently, regularly, and not just around the dinner table or in front of the radio for favorite broadcasts. Catch this line. Billy said she gathered us around herself and my father To listen to Bible stories, to join in family prayers, and to share a sense of the presence of God. My mother was a farm woman. She and my father didn't have much education, but my mother was a woman of God. They always had devotions with us, always prayed with us, always loved us, and did so many things. She and my father, when I was in Bible school, would go up to a room upstairs and kneel down every morning at 10 o'clock to pray for their son, me, who was off at Bible school, Billy said. When word came of her passing, Billy says, I wept and yet rejoiced at the same time. Of all the people I had ever known, she had the greatest influence on me. I am sure one reason that the Lord has directed and safeguarded me through the years was the prayers of my mother and father. And if you haven't guessed, Billy is Billy Graham. That's Billy Graham writing in in, in his book, about the influence that his mother and his father had on his life. Parents, discipleship begins with us. It begins in the home. We have the greatest influence in our children's lives. I believe that twenty four, two 2024, we need to begin to take back some of the ground that the enemy has stolen. Amen? We need God's method for God's mission. We need to begin to see that as Jesus following parents, grandparents, mentors, aunties, uncles, we are to take the lead in the discipleship of our young people. Our job is not simply to just get, make them into good citizens, to get them into good colleges, or to bend over backwards to meet their every wish and whim. Our job is not just to get them to church. No, our job is more than that. We have abdicated long enough Yes, we get them to church. We get them connected in church. But we, the parents, grandparents, and mentors, disciple the next generation diligently. When we wake up and when we lie down, when we're at home and on the go, we help to develop in them biblical literacy and a biblical worldview to pour into the next generation, realizing that we cannot pour from an empty container. This drives us to continue in our own spiritual development and maturation With the church's help and support, we are being discipled as we are also making disciples. And then the multiplication continues. We not only disciple the next generation, but we also help them, equip them to make disciples as well. The Great Commission begins at home. If we utilize God's method for God's mission, mission impossible becomes mission possible. And if you remember only one thing this morning we'll summarize with this and it's on the screen deuteronomy 6 4 through 7 hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and these words which i command you today shall be in your heart you shall teach them diligently to your children you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Let us pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. We thank you for who you are, your mercy and your grace, Father God. We thank you that you didn't just leave us on our own, Father God, that you loved so much that you sent your Son, that you reconciled reconciled us to you through your Son, Jesus. It's available to all people, Lord, you you didn't even leave us wondering about how we are to go about your mission. We thank you, Lord, for that grace. We thank you, Lord, for that wisdom. And I pray right now that you would move on our hearts, just as Malachi said, just as the angel said to Zechariah, we just celebrated, he said that when John the Baptist came, he would turn the hearts of the parents to the hearts of their children, Lord God. Let it be so that we would see ourselves as the primary disciple-makers that we would begin to take the lead, take back what the enemy has stolen. Hallelujah. Help us, challenge us this morning, Father God. First and foremost, that we would love you with all that we are. Even now in this moment of reflection, Father. Are there any places of my life that I haven't surrendered over to you? Do I love you with all that I am? All of my heart, all of my soul, all of my strength. Hallelujah. We would pray fervently, pray brokenly. We would put that chalk circle around ourselves and say, Lord, start with me. Renovate my heart. Lord God, do a work in me that I can't contain it, that I'm so in love with you and so on fire for you that others are going to see it, that I'm going to begin to pour out. To my friends and my neighbors, my children, grandchildren, and this next generation, Father God. Hallelujah. That we would continually tell of what you have done in our life, in others' lives, point, pointing them, pointing people to you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness, your faithfulness, Father. Hallelujah. if you're not a believer this morning with eyes closed, heads are going to be bowed. no one's looking around, I don't want the moment to pass I don't want to assume that you're a Jesus follower this morning but before you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind strength, you've got to know God you've got to know Him through His Son Jesus and if you can say this morning I don't know what you're talking about Pastor Scott this all sounds great, but I've never made a decision to follow Jesus I pray that right now is that moment It's the greatest decision that you'll ever make. Say, yes, Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. If if that's you, would you just slip up a hand? If you want to make a commitment to follow Jesus today, if that's you, don't let this moment slip. Say, yes, Lord, I will follow you all the days of my life. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The rest of us, if we would stand... We're going to worship the Lord. The altars are open. If you need prayer, we would love to pray with you. If you just need to get time alone with the Lord, I encourage you. Don't let just today just pass as another day. The Lord, the Holy Spirit's working on your life. Take a moment, worship, and pray. Let's seek the Lord this morning.